Well, it is always a delight to be with you all and to uh, open the word to you this morning. I'm joined this morning with my wife, Jennifer, sitting in the back, and our son, Wyatt, and our little daughter, Darby. So you have an opportunity to say hi to them. Darby's the one that's been making noise in the back. But so- sounds of the covenants, right? You know, Darby is two, and she likes it when Daddy picks her up and throws her up in the air most of the time. But every once in a while, she gets this, she gets this look of terror in her eyes and screams, No! as she's up in the air. Why is she afraid? I've never dropped her. Yet. <laughs> Fortunately. Why do you struggle to trust God completely? What promise has God ever not kept? This morning we're looking at Genesis chapter 15. And this is going to give us a picture of how God helped one man trust him for his future. Before we look at Genesis 15, I want to give us just a really brief summary up to this point. And actually, uh, Pastor Hatton has already said several of the things that I would have said. But in Genesis 1 and 2, God creates everything perfect, good. And he makes mankind in his image as the pinnacle of creation. And so in the Garden of Eden, we have God's people in God's place under his rule, in his special presence. And so when Genesis 3 comes along and Adam and Eve disobey, the curse is that they are kicked out of God's special place, kicked out of his presence. As Pastor Hatton said, even in the midst of that cursing, there's a promise of hope. God promises to send one who will crush the head of the serpent, the seed of of the woman. So why do we need to go back and look at that? Well, some of you have probably been at a birthday party or some kind of event and you've played the little relay race where you have to carry an egg on a spoon and run to the other side of the room and come back and pass it to the next person. But if you get to the end without the egg, you lose. Well, in the same way, if we get to the end of the Bible, or really to any part, and we don't have the seed promise, we lose. When you drop the egg, you go back to the beginning and you get the egg. And so we always want to keep this promise of the seed in mind. As I told some of my students a few weeks ago, this Christmas season, as you're hearing scriptures read and as you're singing these things, the thing I want in your mind is it's the seed. The promised seed has come. So we've got this trajectory in the Bible from the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve getting kicked out to the end of history where we have at the end of Revelation again, God's people in God's place, in his special presence and under his rule. So that is the the big trajectory. That's the arc that everything else falls under. And now this morning, we're going to drop down and look specifically at how that promise unfolds. 
In Genesis chapter 12, the first three verses, God calls one particular man, Abram. And he says, leave your country, the place where your family is, and go to the place I will call you. And I'm going to do three things. I am going to make of you a great nation. I'm going to give you land. And I will bless you so that you will be a blessing to the nations. And so as we look at Genesis chapter 15, we find Abram, a man who has just received these promises from God, having a struggle to trust that God will fulfill those promises because he can't see exactly how God will work this out. So let me invite you to stand as we read together Genesis chapter 15, 1 through 21. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram, I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O Lord, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. And behold, The word of the Lord came to him. This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, look toward heaven and number the stars. If you are able to number them. Then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord and he counted it to him as righteousness. And he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. But he said, O Lord, how am I to know I shall possess it? He said to him, bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle dove and a young pigeon. And he brought him all these, cut them in half and laid each half over against the other. But he did not cut the birds in half. And when the birds of prey came down on the carcasses, Abram drove them away. As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram. And behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. Then the Lord said to Abram, know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there. And they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve. And afterward, they shall come out with great possessions. As for yourself, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age. And they shall come back here in the fourth generation. For the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying to your offspring, I give this land from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Kadmonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Rephaim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites and the Jebusites. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. And I'm assuming I need to stay In front of this mic. Let me pray for us. Our great God and Father, we thank you that you are a God 
who makes promises to your people and that you fulfill your covenant promises. We pray this morning that you would open our eyes to this portion of your word, that we might behold great and wonderful things about who you are for us and what you've accomplished for us. God, we pray that the meditations of our hearts would be pleasing in your sight, that you would open the eyes of our hearts that we might see your power and your glory and might better rest in your promises. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as Jeff said, I graduated from Baylor eight and a half years ago, and within just a few months, I was almost homeless. I was in seminary in St. Louis and living on campus, and somebody made a wonderful offer to me of a free room in their house. And I thought, this is great. What a great way to save money. And so I immediately broke my lease at my on-campus apartment and thought, this is going to be great. I'm going to have all this extra money. And two weeks before the end of the term and before finals, and before I was about to get kicked out of my apartment because they'd already filled it, the family's son unexpectedly returned and the offer of a free room disappeared. And here I am in a, in a city that I didn't really know, disconnected from family. And so what did I do? Well, as any young seminarian confident in the providence of God would do, I panicked. <laughs> I was distraught. I was a wreck. How is this going to work out? Here I am, and I'm going to be homeless. I don't have a place to live. And I remember calling back here to my former campus minister in RUF, Tom Gibbs, and telling him the situation, asking for prayer. And I remember him saying to me that there was this really nice overpass at the intersection of Highway 270 and Ladue, and that he would be glad to send me a blanket. <laughs> Not exactly what I needed to hear, but looking back, it, it's funny. But I was so fixated on the moment, on my present circumstances, that I couldn't see how this was going to work out. I felt vulnerable. And this is the exact same situation that Abraham finds himself in. He asks the same question. He says, God, you've called me out of my land, away from my family, to this place. And you've made promises to me. You've said that you're going to give me an heir. You've said that you are going to give me this land, but I just don't see how you're going to do it. God, how are you going to make that happen? And we need to be clear up front that we can't apply these particular physical promises that were made to Abraham to us. We can't say God promised Abraham a child, so he's promising me a child. God promised Abraham land, so that means he's promising me land, though I'm sure many of us would, would love a big spread in South Texas. But these promises point forward to greater blessings for the Christian. They, they are promises of, of redemption, of a future. But like Abram, most of us struggle from spiritual myopia, spiritual nearsightedness. Those of us that have nearsightedness, like myself, wear contacts or glasses because 
We can only see things that are right in front of our face. In the same way, we have spiritual nearsightedness. We struggle to trust in God's promises because our gaze is inward on our own circumstances and we lose sight of God's power and his promise. And so the remedy that we will see in this passage is that we need to take our gaze off of ourselves and put it on God's power and his promise. Well, in verse one, God affirms for Abraham who he is. He says, Abram, I am your shield, your protector, your defender. And he says what he will do for Abram. He says, your reward will be great. Looks back to the promises of chapter 12 of great blessing that God is going to make him into a people and give him land. But Abram responds in verse two, God, how are you going to give me a child? I'm old. My wife is old and she's barren. God, how are you going to make me into a great nation? And some of us this morning might say, well, I'm not really like that. I don't struggle to trust in God's providence. Really? Why is it then that you are so anxious about your job, the job that you hope to get or the job that you fear that you will lose? Why is it that we're so anxious about our children's future? As if the decisions that we make are so monumental that we could just mess everything up. Why is it that we're so hesitant to give sacrificially? For you college students, why is it that when you're deciding about majors and vocations to pursue for the future, it's so difficult to not let money be the dominant factor that influences your decision? Is it not because money provides us security? Is it not that at the heart we don't really trust that God can provide for us everything that we need and so we feel like we need to attain it for ourselves? For those of you who are members of Redeemer Church, you really believe that God desires to extend his supremacy through you to Waco and to beyond. And this building that we worship in is a tangible sign of his good providence. And yet I bet many of you are anxious, anxious about the future, anxious about finances. How will he provide? Maybe God has miscalculated Why is it that it is immensely difficult for us to put the interests of others before ourselves? Why do I always have to make sure that I am completely taken care of before I can think about somebody else? Is it not that I'm really saying, God, I don't know if you're going to take care of me. We have a hard time believing sometimes that God hasn't forgotten us. And at the heart of the matter is the question, does God really care for me? And so what does God do for us? He redirects our gaze. 
Abram's issue was that God had promised him a child, but he was old and his wife was barren. And he looks at his circumstances just as we look at our own circumstances. And he says, God, how are you going to do this? And the cure is in verse five. But how does God respond to him? Does he say, well, Abram, let me explain to you how I'm going to do this. Does he give him an anatomy lesson, how he's going to overcome barrenness and old age? No. He says, Abram, come outside with me. Look at verse five. He says, and he brought him outside and said, look toward heaven and number the stars if you are able to number them. Then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. So it's not an anatomy lesson, but an astronomy lesson. He says, Abram, look at the stars. I made them all. Maybe it's not even so much of an astronomy lesson as it is a theology lesson. Abram, I'm not going to tell you exactly how I'm going to work out my promise. But look at what I control. Abram, what kind of a God do you think you're dealing with here? We struggle, like Abram, to trust God's providence because we're so fixated on our present circumstances. We have spiritual myopia. And the cure is for us to take our gaze off of ourselves and our present circumstances and to gaze at God's power. Abram believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. J.I. Packer, in his very familiar, famous book, Knowing God, gives an illustration in chapter 10, which is called God's Wisdom and Ours. I recommend it. He gives the illustration of a railway station. And I'm going to change it to an airport because I think that might be more familiar to most of us. But he says, if you go to an airport, you can observe what's taking place out on the tarmac. You can see planes landing, streams of planes coming in, planes taking off, planes being moved all around. And as you sit there, you might wonder, where is my plane? Why is my plane not at the gate? And some of you have had the experience of sitting on the tarmac for hours saying, Why aren't we leaving? Why is that plane getting to go first? Why is everybody moving except for us? And Packer says, if we were to go up into the control tower, what we would see is huge screens that have all of the planes for miles and miles around coming in. And we would see people that understand the situation and that are controlling the situation. And it would all make perfect sense why this plane is having to wait and why this plane is going and why it's being directed this way. And we look at our present circumstances and we want to know why is this happening? Or God, how are you going to prove yourself faithful in this situation? And we know that if we could just go up into the control tower, it would all make perfect sense. But God doesn't take us into the control tower. 
Many of us think that real spirituality, real wisdom, would be for us to understand the whys, the hows. If, if we really had more faith, it would all make sense. But God doesn't say, I'm going to explain it to you. He says, this is who I am. Trust in my power and my promises. Why is it so hard for us? Well, many of us have experienced broken promises before. Children, some of you have probably had your mother say, I'm going to pick you up from soccer practice. And then you've sat there alone for 15 minutes by yourself, wondering if she's going to remember to come. The next time you're going to want a lot of assurance that she is going to remember and she's going to be there. Some of you have experienced the pain of broken marriage vows. Your heart has been torn apart and you struggle with a real ability to trust. God doesn't just direct our gaze to his power, but also to his promises. And in verse seven, God gives Abram a history of their relationship. He says to Abram, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. This is who I am. I am the God of promise. Abram, I'm going to do this. But in 15, eight, we find this heartrending question. It's epistemology 101. Abram says, how can I know God? I believe, but help my unbelief. Abram says, you've promised me this land, this land of Canaan. But as I look around, it's filled with Canaanites. And I'm not able to make them go away. God, how are you going to do this? What are you going to do? Again, he's focusing on his own inability, his inability to dispossess the land. And God doesn't tell him, well, Abram, you know, I'm going to do this really cool trick where the people are going to march around the city of Jericho and blow a trumpet and the walls are going to fall down and it's going to be great. And this is how it's going to work out. God doesn't tell him that. God gives him a sign of promise. Verse nine, he says, Abram, go get a cow and a goat and a ram and a turtle dove and a pigeon and cut them in half. And so Abram goes off and he knows exactly what's going on. And those of you who were raised in the ancient Near East understand this as well. <laughs> but for the rest of us, we might need a little bit of explanation. In the ancient Near East, it was common when when treaties were made between kings, one king to another or a king to a lesser king, maybe a promise that I will protect you and you will give me homage or I'm going to give you this city in return for something else. An agreement was made and a covenant was made. And then there was a ratification ceremony where the two parties of the covenant would walk down this aisle in between animals that had literally been been ripped in half. And what they were saying as they walked down this aisle 
down this line together was, if I break this covenant, if I fail to keep this promise, may I be torn in two like these animals. And so let's think about how Abram might have been feeling. He said, God, I wanted you to assure me that you'd give me the land. And now I'm going to have this death sentence on me if I fail to take the land. That doesn't help me a lot, God. I wanted assurance. And now if I wimp out, I'm dead. Verses 12 through 16, God puts Abram asleep. And he restates the promise for him. And in verse 13, he tells Abram, your descendants are going to be sojourners in a land that's not their own. And we know that they would spend 400 years in Egypt as slaves. And most of us think that's not a great promise. I don't like that. But what it tells us is that God takes a long view of his promises. It's that big trajectory. Abram, you're not even going to come back here. And most of your descendants are going to die in Egypt or in the wilderness. There's going to be hardship. But hardship isn't a sign that God is not keeping his promises. If you know the story, often it's the means by which God keeps his promises. People with obsessive compulsive disorder, and I think I might have a very mild level of this, uh, often struggle with assurance of salvation, even if we know that we're saved by faith alone. Because we ask, what if I haven't believed right? What if I haven't prayed right? Maybe I need to do it again. We know our own inability. We know that we break our promises often. And if it rests on me, then I'm scared. Because I know that it just might not happen. Well, now God says to Abram, Abram, it's time to ratify this covenant. It's time to walk the line. But something amazing happens. There's a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch that represent God's presence. And Abram sees them going down the line in between these animals that have been split apart. God's presence walks the line. But Abram doesn't. Abram is just sitting there watching What's going on? God is saying to Abram, I'm the one who's going to keep this promise. It's on me, Abram. I'm walking the line, not you. Abram, I know you and your descendants are going to be unfaithful. Abram, I know that you are going to sin against me and against this covenant that we are making And the penalty is going to be death. 
But Abram, I am going to take that on myself. I'm walking the line. This is your assurance that I will keep my promise. And God fulfills his promise to Abram in the person and work of Jesus Christ. He is the promised seed. The one who has come to rescue his people from slavery to sin. He's the one that guarantees the end of the trajectory. He's the one that guarantees the city with a garden where God's people will dwell in God's place. In his special presence. Under his perfect rule. His body is torn because of the covenant in order that God's promise may be fulfilled. So what's the application for us? The application is that our hope is not in our ability to keep our promises. Your hope is not in your spouse as the great promise keeper. Your hope is in the one true promise keeper. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 1.20 that all of the promises of God find their yes in Christ Jesus. And then he writes to the Romans in chapter 8 that he who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, if he's done that, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? So the foundation of our trust can't be in our own seeing and certainty. The foundation of our trust must be the knowledge of our covenant keeping God. God's sign of the promise to Abraham was that he walked the line. What signs of promise do we have? We have the sign of baptism, which we've seen this morning and we've heard explained. A sign of God's promise. And we have the Lord's Supper. We have a weekly reminder that God keeps his promises. It's a ceremony of assurance for all Christians who come with weak and struggling faith. In this meal that we will celebrate, King Jesus is present and he says to our often weakened faith, God is keeps his promises always he says this is my body which has been broken torn apart for you this is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for you for the forgiveness of your sins you know i haven't dropped darby yet But I've broken lots of promises. But God has never once broken a promise. Ever. And so when we come and ask, how can I know? The answer is that regardless of life's circumstances, we walk in trust because he walked the line. Will you pray with me? God, we pray that you would give us spiritual lenses that we might see beyond ourselves, 
beyond our circumstances, that we might see the stars clearly, that we might see the greater trajectory of your promise, that we would trust in who you are as the promise-keeping, covenant-keeping God. As we come to this table this morning, would you confirm to our hearts that you have kept your promise and that you will give us everything that has been promised to your people. Heavenly riches, spiritual riches. These all find their yes in Jesus Christ. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.